Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me this week is a special guest, Patrick Burke from the Star Draft. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to this one. Likewise. So we are hot off the heels of two weeks of reviewing Christmas Day releases. Last week, I was joined by Colby Mack to talk about Soul, and the week before, I reviewed Wonder Woman 1984 with Ian Anderson. So go check out those reviews. But now, with 2020 finally, finally at an end, and 2021 starting off just beautifully, I might add, of course. <laughs> of course. Has there been anything in the news that's happened? I think it's been pretty chill lately. I don't think so. Yeah, it's been a really great <laughs> 10 days, for sure. <laughs> Nothing out of the ordinary. <laughs> exactly. But with 2020 finally at an end, it's time to start looking back at the year in film. Next week, we'll be discussing the best films of 2020, but today, Pat and I are going to be discussing the top five performances from 2020. So even if the film isn't great, these are the actors that gave, in our opinions, the best five performances in film during the last year. So Pat and I will take turns counting down our top five performances, starting with number five, and highlighting any actors on both of our lists the first time they appear. This conversation will, for the most part, be spoiler-free, but if there is a particular performance you want to keep completely spoiler-free, I'll provide the timestamps for each of them in the show notes. And as usual with these ranking episodes, I'll start with a few disclaimers. Every single one of these performances will be from films that received wide releases in 2020. That way, we aren't talking about performances that very few people have seen. So this means no Minari, no Nomadland, uh, so on and so on. We also needed to have seen these films for the performance to make our lists, obviously. As frustrating as it is, I still haven't seen Promising Young Woman. I may be the only person <laughs> who hasn't seen it, but I will get to see that next week. Uh, so that's awesome. But for this podcast episode, just keep in mind that we haven't seen every single film from 2020. And lastly, these are personally subjective lists instead of an objective ranking of performances. So keep that in mind as well. But speaking of objective rankings, Pat. Let's talk about the Star Draft. The Star Draft is an awesome fantasy league website where you draft a team of celebrities and get points throughout award season for nominations and wins. So normally I'm not a huge fan of episode sponsors and dedicating time to an episode and dedicating time in an episode for it, but I think the Star Draft is really cool. I love the idea and I think it works great with this topic. And we've got the guy behind the programming here to talk about it. So Pat, could you just talk a little bit about the Star Draft, what it is and how it works? Certainly. Uh, well, thanks so much for, for having me on here today and let me share a little bit about it. Um, the Star Draft, we've been around, I guess th this is an idea that, you know, originated, I guess, like 2013, 2014, just oh, wow. uh, me and some of my friends, you know, thinking through, we play a lot of fantasy sports, you know, fantasy baseball, you know, fantasy football and, and things like that. And we're like, well, we also love movies and we love music and we love TV, but there isn't really a medium to kind of play the same fantasy level of uh, a kind of fandom that you have there. Everybody loves, you know, a, like a Beyonce or, or you might love a Meryl Streep, but you've never been able to really have that person on your team per se. <laughs> um, there's, we're big fans of the award shows, you know, that provide kind of the glitz and glamour of, of, of Hollywood and, and of the music industry that, you know, is just something that provides a little charm at the end of every year, typically. This year yeah. is a little bit different because the award shows have kind of been pushed into the spring, which is a little bit unusual, but still... The idea is to kind of look back at what the year was last and give you an opportunity to compete against some of your friends in who is the best at knowing what celebrities are going to win awards. 
So unlike you may have filled out like a, you know, a typical sheet where it goes through all of the Oscar nominees and you can maybe pick out which ones might win for best picture, best sound editing and, and the such. We're really looking at not just that one award show, but can you pick the best nominees and award winners for every award show over the course of an award season? So not only can you pick the Oscars, but can you do the Golden Globes? Can you do the SAG Awards? Can you do the Critics' Choice Awards? Can you do the Grammys? So we're really, you know, giving it that full season type of thing instead of just that one-off uh, opportunity. And it really gives you an opportunity to compete and play along with some of your friends or some new people that you've maybe met on the platform. So it's been really fun. We used to just do it all in this really <laughs> detailed spreadsheet back in the <laughs> early 2010s. We've now yeah. moved on to a website. But yeah, I, I think it's a great, really fun thing that I still engage in, play in yearly in, in a few leagues. But I, thanks for letting me come on to talk a little bit about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm excited to do this. This is, this is going to be my first year doing it too, but I love the idea because it's so simple. And I feel like I've had the idea just, you know, passively like, oh, wouldn't it be sure. great to do a fantasy league kind of thing like this? And I love the execution of it and the concept. So I'm really excited for this. And I think it's like, it works really well with the conversation that's going to be in this episode and then some of our episodes later on in the year. So I think it's a perfect kind of uh, pair or match made in heaven. I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> But so you basically, you create an account on the Star Draft, right? And then you sign up for a league. How many people are in a league? So, it, you know, the league size is really up to you. Um, it mm -hmm. could be one of those things where you have a few friends that you're looking to get together with and you want to create your own league. And if you've only got, you know, four or five friends, that's not a problem at all. You can play with your four or five friends. Um, but the max size is 12. If you want to create a league with 12 friends, great. You know, maybe me, I'm just personally in these, in these pandemic days searching for 12 friends. Um, but if you want <laughs> to play general, with yeah. a group, this, exactly. If you want to play with a group of 12 folks, you can. Um, but if you want to play with three or four folks, that's, just, that's fine as well. So there's kind of the two options. One, you go on, you look through, we have these public, what you call leagues, where you can see, you know, there's a league that's drafting or, or starting to take place January 11th. And that happens at 6 p.m. And you're like, great, that time works for me. I don't know any of the folks in this group, but I look forward to meeting them. Great, I'm going to sign up, join that group. Or uh, you could reach out to all your friends and say, hey, we're going to do our draft on January 20th. Get ready to go. Um, and then you round up the, you know, three, four, six, 10, 12 folks that you want to play. Cool. So when we are doing this drafting process, can you talk a little bit about how that works? I mean, there's, you, you can theoretically draft whoever you want right and then those people become on your come on your team and then they kind of earn points throughout the award season correct you got it so you have the opportunity to you know pick your own draft time as i mentioned and then create that own league that works for you and your friends or or your newly met, met friends but you they basically go through we have several hundred celebrities deep in this kind of system ranked You'll even mm -hmm. see further than that. You know, I think our, our total database of celebrities is over a thousand different celebrities that you could actually select. And they're across TV, film, and music. And each of you has the opportunity to select a total of 10 celebrities, but you must have at least two musicians, two TV actors, and two film actors. Um, and for those of you who have never played fantasy before, like fantasy sports or anything, it's a really simple process. Basically, you're given a number, if there's, say, four of you, you're ranked one through four. So number one will draft first, number two will draft second, number three will draft third, 
four will draft four. And then uh, it goes back through that. So then four will draft fifth, three will draft sixth. Mm-hmm. As you can see, it kind of snakes <laughs> yeah. up and down. Um, but it's a pretty simple process and you just go through and pick the celebrities as you navigate through the process. And so obviously this drafting process has to happen before the season starts, right? When does the season start and kind of like what what award ceremonies does it encompass? Because there's all sorts of award ceremonies, right? There's like the Critics' Choice and then even smaller exactly. ones like Indie Spirit, all that stuff. Yeah. So we've tried to kind of keep it where there's a nice pace of award shows, but it's mm-hmm. not so demanding that you need to be on the website every you know, hour or two hours to make sure that you've got the most, you got the Independent Spirit Awards or you got the <laughs> Razzies or you yeah. got the different film festivals. Um, so really we get kicked off on January 18th and you can win points for both nominations and you can win points for awards. So nominations is an exciting day in its own right. Um, now more and more places or more and more award shows are actually broadcasting their nominations on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a huge fanatic and you want to wake up at five o'clock in the morning LA time and watch uh, <laughs> the Oscar nominees come in, you can do that um, and watch your your team accumulate points over that process. But we get started with the Critics' Choice nominations, which take place on January 18th, and those are specifically TV. So the Critics' Choice mm-hmm. nominations are the only ones that do TV and film separately in terms of when they come out. Oh, um, okay. So. Yeah. So starting on January 18th, and then the last award show is the Oscars, which is super late this year, April 25th. So it's about four months uh, where you're kind of playing this game. (laughs) And so mid-season, you can kind of trade celebrities or like pick up ones that weren't drafted in the original process, correct? Exactly. So, you know, I I think we've seen a lot in, in recent years. You just don't foresee some of the nominees coming out. You know, last year... For example, and this is a TV reference, but The Good Place had a surprisingly good showing at the Mm -hmm. um, Golden Globes and SAG Awards. So somebody like Darcy Carden was not somebody that a lot of folks had on their teams. And you're like, oh, all right, I know her. She's been nominated. Let's pick (laughs) her up so that she can win at some of the upcoming award shows. Got it. So every single league has a designated draft time, but what happens if you can't make that designated draft time? Like, let's say it just doesn't work for you. Can you still join the league? Like, are you SOL? <laughs> Not quite. Uh, fortunately, you can still join the league. What happens is that we, you know, we rank all of these celebrities, mm-hmm. um, which in part, you know, is to provide a guide for those folks who maybe don't know the entirety of film, TV, and music celebrities. Uh, but it also acts as a tool to to basically auto draft. So if you were missing for that draft and you didn't make it, you would just get whatever that highest ranked celebrity is in the algorithm that we've put together. Um, so even if you can't make it, you join the league and you're like, oh, shoot, I forgot about that time. You're still going to have a team and you could add and drop players or celebrities as you kind of navigate through the season if you don't like exactly what our algorithm picked for you. Got it. So I'm scrolling through these these star draft rankings and they seem really in depth, right? You've got a ranking of celebrities. If you look at, for example, number one is Olivia Coleman and her category is film and TV. And there's like a projected remaining points. And it says that of all the celebrities, Olivia Coleman has the highest projected remaining points at 31.75. And I'm imagining that's because she can be nominated and then also win for both her film role in The Father and her TV role in The Crown, right? Exactly. I, I'm I'm sure you can't talk too much about it, but <laughs> what's what's the uh logic behind the rankings? Is it is it completely algorithm based or is it that there's some sort of like um subjective aspect to it or or what goes into that? 
Yeah. So there's a few things. One, obviously, celebrities who can be selected in several categories are going to be worth more because you can mm -hmm. kind of slot them into those positions. And they're also going to be eligible for more award shows. So Olivia Coleman with The Crown and The Father, and she's a probably our biggest, um, our, our longest standing, I guess I should say, like, she's royalty within the Star Draft Leagues going back several <laughs> years because of her appearances in The Crown and, and, and other things where she's received just tons of nominations and wins. Yeah. Um, the favorite as well. So we factor that in. You know, we're trying to look at what is the buzz coming out about these different celebrities? What is the um, – what are the different things that are nominated in? And then what also like what do we think based on wh who is in her categories? Does she have a shot to win? Uh, okay. So if, if she's in a category that we – you know, there's just not a lot of competition, there's going to increase those odds. Or, you know, Chadwick Boseman is ranked number three, and I know we're going to talk about him a little bit later today. There's a lot of things going on with Chadwick Boseman this year. Right. Unfortunately, we lost him in 2020, but his odds of winning award shows seem to be pretty great, and that's boosted by um, some of the things that have maybe happened posthumously. Okay, yeah. So you seem to be indicating that in the Star Draft ranking system already, there's sort of some adjustments to be made for something I would say it's like an award season narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Much like any type of voting, the objective best winner doesn't always win. And there's all types of these narratives where somebody just kind of gets the Oscar, not necessarily because or completely because of the performance, but because of some outside stuff. And I think one, for example, a really common one is the it's their time narrative, where someone who's been around for years and has consistently delivered great performances is finally awarded for their most recent performance, even if it's not necessarily their best performance. So I think one example of that for me personally, I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, I don't think The Revenant is Leonardo DiCaprio's best performance, but he's just given so many over the years that they were kind of like, well, it's a soft year. Let's give it to him this year. I thought it'd be interesting here to just take a little bit of time since we talked about it a little bit before the show. Um to talk about any potential narratives that we already see forming around this year and see how that might influence how we would how we would want to hypothetically pick our team. So I mean the main one I think that is going to be really big this year is one that you've already talked about Pat is that that Chadwick Boseman posthumous Oscar campaign. And I mean there's not a ton of examples of this but the most recent one and the probably the biggest one that I can think of is Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker, uh, where he won a posthumous Oscar. And I believe that was in 2008. So, you know, we've seen the Joker get Oscars before, or I mean, I guess that was the first time, but since then, Joaquin Phoenix has also got it for the Joker. But being a, a um, superhero performance is pretty uncommonly rewarded. Sure. So that's kind of a, a testament to how big of a deal that Heath Ledger performance was. And I think it certainly was impacted by the fact that um, he passed away tragically. And I think similarly here, Chadwick Boseman stands a real chance at getting an Oscar, both for either um, his supporting role in The Five Bloods or his leading actor role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. What do you think? No, I, I completely agree. I think what's particularly interesting is, yes, there's Heath Ledger. There's only been one other Oscar winner to be awarded posthumously. And that's Peter oh. Finch, who won for Network. Um, right, and that's yeah. the only best actor. Um, Heath Ledger famously won for Best Supporting Actor. So Chadwick Boseman would be only the third to win an Oscar in an acting role, I should say. There's been a number of you know technical awards or Best Picture awards that have won 
um, mm-hmm. beyond the person's death. But I think it's going to be really interesting. I think that the only way that he doesn't is if, you know, the academies decide or the voters decide to vote uh, for one or the other and they kind of split yeah. votes, um, which I still don't think is really the case, though. I think what what seems to be going to be the the winning performance is going to be for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There's just been so much discussion about that performance and him really embodying that role. While as in The Five Bloods, you know, he kind of plays this almost mythical character, but he doesn't really take over the movie. He is certainly a presence in the film, um, but there's also just a lot of great other uh, candidates Mm -hmm. for Best Supporting Actor in that role. And if they're already going to vote for him in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, maybe that's where the award for him will lie. It would be very shocking if he was to win both, but I guess I guess not completely out of the question, but um, <laughs> typically unusual, at least for award shows. Yeah. And I mean, I think the best actor category does not have a huge clear front runner other than Chadwick Boseman. I mean, I know that there's a lot of buzz about uh, Anthony Hopkins, for example, but he already has one, obviously, for uh, Silence of the Lambs. And I mean, sure, that was a long right. time ago, but I, I just think that it would be really tough to not award Chadwick Boseman for this award because he was such an important character figure and such a fantastic actor, as I'm sure we'll discuss um, a little later in this podcast. So I think Chadwick Boseman, in terms of if you're going to pick somebody for your team, that's a great one to pick because he's definitely getting at least one nomination and most likely getting at least one win, if not multiples. No, completely agree. And I I think that you know, th- this is also the one of those things that you don't know. And you talk about kind of the narratives that start to form. There's been this narrative going about Chadwick Boseman for some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, even dating back to before Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was released, it was like, this is going to be the thing that he wins for. But, I, you know, I, you don't know. We also saw Gary Oldman for a long time was kind of trending as potential best actor uh, winner for this year. And as Mank came out and the reviews were great, but it seems like they're really pushing Amanda Seyfried to be the campaign Mm -hmm. award winner this year and gary oldman has kind of lost some of that momentum you know who knows what happens if uh, jesus and the black messiah comes out and the votes are starting to get pushed in a different direction we don't know there's just a lot of stuff that hasn't come out yet and maybe when it does chadwick starts to fall in those those kind of rankings but i just think you're right i think that he's still kind of the odds on favorite to win at the oscars this year Speaking of perhaps a narrative that has kind of fallen out of favor lately is the Amy Adams and Glenn Close uh, <laughs> thing, I guess, narrative from Hillbilly Elegy. I mean, uh, I reviewed that on this podcast with somebody from the Mike, Mike and Oscar podcast, and we were both pretty negative about the film, even though those performances are actually quite good. Um, but the thing that's crazy about these two, and in case people haven't been keeping up, is that They are both the number one and number two most nominated actor without a win in all of Academy Awards history. So Glenn Close has seven nominations and Amy Adams has six nominations and they don't have a single win. So if they're nominated this year, that would be pretty awful because then they would get another nomination and I really don't think they're going to win here. What are your thoughts, Pat? Yeah, I think I think um, they. Some have suggested that there's a better chance that Amy Adams wins a Razzie than an actual. Yikes! <laughs> uh, um, no, I don't think that the performances are that. I actually like the Glenn Close performance. Like mm-hmm. both of them are really going for it, and I think that this was a movie that had it come out in 2017 or 2018, this would be a much different conversation. I think that. Mm-hmm. 
if you think back to that 2017, there is this, we need to understand rural white America. We need to understand the voters who voted for Donald Trump. And there was right. a lot of buzz around this type of book that came out uh, when J.D. Vance wrote it. And I think if the movie had come out around that time, you know, the Academy is also a uh, victim to political narratives as well. And I think that they would have, you know, really could have glommed onto performances like this in, in this larger movie. Right now, um, coming off of the things that happened at the beginning of this month, I don't think that this is going to be a narrative <laughs> that a lot of the Academy is really going to want to push or to advance. So um, I think it's very interesting that these two folks are uh, some of the most nominated, but winless actors at the Academy Awards, but I think they're just going to be 0 for 6 or 0 for 7 and 0 for 8, respectively, unfortunately, for two really phenomenal actresses. Yeah. So it looks like um, Amy Adams is not on the star draft right now, unless I, I missed it. And Glenn Close is number 60. So there's still some potential for nominations <laughs> there. And I mean, I mean, I'm sure she'll pop up somewhere, but yeah, I, I don't think I wouldn't bet that this is the year that she gets the Oscar, and I, I don't I don't even think an, a nomination is looking likely anymore. And I mean, the other thing is that Netflix has its hands full with a lot of other films that are much more likely to get nominations, so I don't even know if they're going to really push Hillbilly Elegy that hard. Yeah. And in, in fairness, Amy Adams, so we only list our top 200 celebrities on the, on the rankings page. Got in it. our system, we have her ranked at 220. So take, take that for what it's <laughs> worth. Um, I don't know if that would, you know, we want to give you the opportunity if you're a big Amy Adams believer, you can certainly pick her, but uh, that would not be my uh, <laughs> pro professional opinion, at least at this point. Maybe don't pick with your heart, pick with your gut. So yeah. uh, I'm not picking Amy <laughs> Adams, that's for sure. That's fair. So yeah, I mean, the the one other narrative that, I mean, has been kind of a narrative for the last, I want to say, five to 10 years, you know, ever since Netflix has been starting to break through at some of these Academy or I guess I should say award ceremonies, is the idea of the near universal shift to streaming this year. And obviously, a mm -hmm. lot of uh, movie theaters closed around the country. I know, Pat, you're in LA, and there's still no movie theaters open. And I'm certainly not going to movie theaters here in Boston. So almost everything that I saw was on a streaming service this year, uh, with the right. exception of some of the stuff that came out earlier in the year. Much to Christopher Nolan's chagrin. Absolutely. <laughs> I did actually go to a drive-in to see Tenet, so I, I did my best, Christopher Nolan. I really tried to to make it a success there. I'm sure he appreciates it. I sent him a letter and he hasn't gotten back to me, so I, I don't know. That sounds about right. Um, <laughs> so, so there's two ways that this could kind of affect the awards ceremony. So, I mean, I guess my question to you, Pat, is that is does this make it more likely for films that did not go straight to streaming to break through? So these are the films that maybe wouldn't be considered otherwise, but because that they were these kind of theatrical releases earlier in the year, they break through like uh, Elizabeth Moss, for example, in The Invisible Man. Or do you think that this is finally going to be Netflix's big year since everyone is kind of now on their playing field? Um, they're not going to have that bias of being the streaming service. Yeah, and Netflix has had now several years to kind of perfect the online streaming, whereas HBO Max is like, we're figuring it out in real time. Yep. Um, <laughs> and I think they've seen some good success and some kind of mediocre. I guess Wonder Woman 1984, you can kind of decide in your own, your own opinion of whether or not that was a success. They said it was, you know, really successful in terms of people who watched it. Uh, but they're, obviously, the critical reviews have been a little bit different. 
I think it's a great question. I think that I don't know if it, you know, I don't think Elizabeth Moss is is necessarily going to be able to break through mm-hmm. uh, just because it was something released in theaters. But I think what what's becoming really interesting is like what happens as now what blurring the lines between what is TV and what is movie or what are movies? Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the LA Critics Association just yep. nominated <laughs> or just selected Small Axe as their best picture. Absolutely now, Small baffling is five to me. Movie, which is five movies. Okay. I could yeah. see if you picked one of them, like if you pick Mangrove, that makes sense. Um, but they're going out and they're saying this is uh, a movie in one installment. Um, but then it's not something that's even eligible for the Oscars. They've submitted to the uh, Emmys. So hmm. I don't know what this means going forward. I think there's just a lot of questions raised by this this year in terms of like, I, th- I just think there's going to be a continued blur of lines between what is a movie and what is a TV show. Like I think another one was, I think Seth Rogen's An American Pickle is eligible in like TV categories this year. Pretty sure that's a movie. So there's just a lot of things that are just in this weird world where we're trying to figure it out day by day. And I think voters are going to be having the same questions as well. But I I think to your question, some of these movies that maybe, you know, I don't know if Sound of Metal or Ma Rainey's Black Bottom gets the type of in-person attendance that they're getting on Netflix or getting on Amazon Prime. And that is probably Mm -hmm. really exciting for those films because like, I don't know. Sound of Metal is one of my favorite movies of last year. I don't know if everybody's going to go out to a theater to see that movie. So maybe this gives a chance to some of these little known films. But what also happens is there's a lot of great stuff that just gets released on Netflix and Amazon Prime and just nobody ever sees it. And it just gets buried because it never makes a theatrical release. So, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons with it, I think. Yeah, I mean, so as somebody who keeps up with a lot of this stuff week to week and who listens to all the podcasts of people who are much more intelligent than I am, who study the trades and everything and and, and talk about this stuff for a living. Um, it's really fascinating, this this kind of uh, I, volatile may not be the right word, but it is a bit volatile, the industry right now. And, and just getting to experience such a seismic shift in real time is incredibly fascinating it's there's obviously a lot of bad things about it like people i'm sure are losing jobs and people are freaking out but then there's also a lot of really good things and i think you're hitting kind of both points on the head right you know you've got the it it is great that i mean i probably would have seen sound of metal if it came out in theaters and i'm sure you would have as well but Mm -hmm. um by providing it to everybody at once it's a much easier to if you can get a huge swell of support immediately as opposed to the more traditional thing that is more heavily favoring films with kind of some sort of hook um, where they get released to a couple theaters and then there's a word of mouth and then there's more and more word of mouth but usually those films are either once in a blue moon films or films that have some sort of hook whether it's the director or the actor and and i think that you're right sound of metal may stand to really benefit from that and we might see awards for that film that we wouldn't see if it was in a more normal year and we were really busy being swallowed by the big theatrically released films. Right. Yeah. No, and it's disappointing. You know, I think that you would love to see, mm-hmm. um, I'd love to see a lot of these movies that are being released. Like I would have loved to have seen Tenet in an actual theater. I saw it in a drive through as well, but it seems like the best viewing experience that from what I've been hearing is actually on your TV. And I think it's just, 
the reality of where we're in right now, you just can't go to a movie theater, uh, at least safely in most places. So this is kind of the circumstance and what it does to the movie industry going forward, I think is to be determined. Uh, mm-hmm. But it certainly does have implications for award shows as they try to figure out, well, are there certain films, you know, I, I think that there's been a lot of Netflix movies in the past that have kind of been uh, looked down upon because they've only been released on Netflix. Now, whether or not that goes forward now, because everything has to be released <laughs> streaming or, right. you know, who, who knows? I, but I think uh, we're seeing a kind of a, a seismic shift within the industry right now. It's definitely something to keep track of and definitely something to keep in mind when you're recruiting, or I guess you don't recruit them, but you do draft them, the actors <laughs> and singers uh, onto your star draft team. You're certainly welcome to give Nicole Kidman a call and see if she wants to join your team. I don't think she's going to reply, though. I think your best <laughs> pick is just just going ahead and drafting her without her permission. <laughs> Nicole Kidman, if you want to join my star draft league, let me know at me. Um, <laughs> exactly. But if the star draft does seem interesting to you, the listener, and it should be because it's it's awesome, uh, you can start your own draft league, of course, with your own friends, or you can say screw your friends and you can join the Movie Marathoners League. Hey. So we've created a league for the podcast and we have spots available. So if you want to play with me and some other listeners, definitely go ahead and go to the stardraft.com, make an account, and then search for public leagues, and you should be able to join the league that way. It should just show up on public leagues. But if for some reason you can't find it on the public leagues page, you can DM me on Twitter at MovieMarapod, or just go ahead and send me an email at MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com, and I'll get you all set up. So uh, definitely be sure to do that before our draft date, which is the Saturday after the release of this episode. So um, January 16th at 1 p.m. EST. Again, and as Pat said, remember that even if you cannot make that draft time, you can still join the league and it'll automatically draft a team for you based on Pat's fancy ranking system. Um, (laughs) So yeah, really looking forward to that. Would love to have as many people join as possible. Awesome. Let's go ahead and move on to our top five film performances from 2020. So as I said before, Pat and I will take turns counting down uh, what we think the best performances were from the past year. And these are just film performances. So no Anya Taylor-Joy, no, I don't even know. That's the only person I can think of off the top of my head, but she would have included, she would have been in my list because she was fantastic. So Pat, how'd you go about making your list? Was this a difficult process or was there five obvious choices for you here? No, this this was very much a difficult process. Um, I think there's just been a lot of really interesting performances this year. And I think the ability to kind of watch a lot of them at home has made that easier mm-hmm. um, and much appreciated. And we'll get a whole new slate of them that came out, I guess, on Christmas Day, just what is it, like the 17 days after or however long those movie contracts state. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to kind of be able to see more of these at home, which uh, I think most people are going to be doing these days. Yeah, the whole ranking anything about 2020 seems like an absolute fiasco because like <laughs> I I don't even know, you know, I haven't seen Nomadland, but when I do see it, if that movie makes whatever top 10 thing or anything, do I put that in 2021? Do I amend my 2020 list? Uh, same with Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Like, do I make an addendum of this podcast or do I just include her in the 2021 version of this? I have no idea. I actually just watched Pieces of a Woman today, and I was like, well, what do I do with Vanessa Kirby? Like, she's <laughs> this is an amazing performance, but it is uh, it came out Christmas Day, but it just hit Netflix today or yeah. on Thursday of last week. So, you know, I think it's um, 
it is, you're right. These are some interesting questions this year. But with that being said, Pat, what is your fifth best performance from 2020? So I'm going with uh, what I think is maybe one of the most tragic performances of this year, which is uh, the character of Paul in The Five Bloods portrayed by Delroy Lindo. I see ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. What happens to all of us, man? Have you seen them too? Yeah. They had come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Nam comes to me damn near every night. Now he talked to you like he talked to me. Come on. I don't think so. Come on. I think we've known that this is going to be kind of an epic performance because this has been, The Five Bloods has been out for quite some time. And we knew that this was going to have a lot of buzz around the award season just based on how he really is so powerful in this movie. Um, and it's it's this Trump supporter who never really a- was able to form human relationships or the relationship with his fu- son, who's uh, played by Jonathan Majors, because of the loss of uh, his comrade, played by Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. And it's just a completely – you at moments hate the character. At moments, you really feel for the character. And then at other times, you just completely are perplexed. You know, mm-hmm. this is a yep. <laughs> Vietnam vet, a black Vietnam vet who's a staunch Trump supporter and seems to make some decisions that you just have no idea why this would be the appropriate decision at this time. But I think it's very well portrayed. And I think the father and son relationship between Jonathan Majors and Delroy Lindo is, is one that uh, is one of the more powerful ones that I've seen between a father and son in, in, in recent years. I'm glad it's on your list. It's uh, it's not on mine, but it is a phenomenal performance. And I think it's just so layered in what you're saying is that there are moments when you're rooting for him and then there's moments when you're not and there's moments where you're angry at him. There's moments when you sympathize with him. I think especially in the last, I want to say 30-ish minutes of this movie, and it's quite a long movie, but in the last 30 minutes, there's stuff that he has to do that is so, ah, oh, man, just like captivating i guess is the best way to say it it's it is magnetic the way that he draws you into the screen and and there's a a certain moment where he's just looking at the screen and delivering a monologue that's that's phenomenal so yeah he has some serious like castaway moments where it's just him on screen monologuing and it's very powerful that's a great one so that's your number five and it's the five bloods delroy lindo and you can check that out on netflix and he is ranked, um, for those folks who are interested, number 34 yeah. in our system. And uh, also, just a good pick, if you're looking for uh, draft nominations, um, is Jonathan Majors, not only for this, but his role in Lovecraft Country, because mm. he is eligible in two, both TV and film. Um, and he's really good in, in both of those as well. So I'll just add that. Yeah, and I guess we forgot to talk about how there's the option for ensemble performance nominations and wins as well, right? So things like in SAG, for example, if they get the best ensemble for Defy Bloods, then you could get multiple points if you had Bozeman and Delroy Lindo or something like that, right? You got it. Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah. So keep that in mind, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, my number five, also from, I, I guess you could call it an, an ensemble, but it's uh, Amanda Seyfried from Mank. Mm. So she plays Marion Davies. She's an actress in the 1940s Hollywood who befriends Gary Oldman's character, who is, of course, the titular Herman Mankiewicz. 
And she doesn't have a huge role in the film. I think, um, you know, it's a bit more pronounced than Chadwick Boseman's in Defy Bloods, for example, but it's not one of those supporting ones that could be argued is another lead. But she does have a very good role and it's a very essential um, to the film because she is the character that Mank cares about the most, but is hurting the most when he decides to go forward with writing the script for Citizen Kane. And when I reviewed the film in December uh, with Matt Naglia, um, we talked about how the film is a bit all over the place <laughs> and the film would have had a little bit more emotional weight had that climax of the film been more focused on the relationship between the Davies character and the main character. And because of that, Seyfried isn't given as much to do as I would like her to do. But when she is on screen, I think she completely nails this role. Um, I think the more and more films you see, it becomes difficult to see characters as individual characters instead of actors playing those characters. And that's only not true if the performance is really good. So we talked about The Crown previously, but Gillian Anderson, for example, plays Margaret Thatcher in that. And while I think she is a phenomenal actor, I think her performance in Thatcher is not that great. So all I see is Gillian Anderson pretending to play Margaret Thatcher, not the <laughs> character of Margaret Thatcher. And to me, Seyfried has always been Karen from Mean Girls. So I was a little concerned that she would kind of stick out in this period piece that's an all black and white David Fincher film. But she crushes it. She completely embraces the role. She changes her voice, the way she talks, the way she holds herself. Um, she really feels like a 1940s actress in the way that she looks and her mannerisms and the way that she speaks instead of just an actor from 2020 playing uh, a character in the 1940s. So she gets a lot of really cool lines of dialogue. She has some good monologues. And I think she's really good at bouncing off of Gary Oldman. So I was really impressed with her. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that she stays more in this sphere of these types of films. I, I think even in Mean Girls, where that's a kind of a silly role where she's just kind of playing somebody who's essentially brain dead, she's really good at it. Um, <laughs> and I feel like she commits to whatever she's in and she's fully yeah. committed to this role in Mank. And I, I think you're right. I think we could see her doing a lot more stuff like this in the future. I think she's just a phenomenal actress. I think, you know, similar to what you've already discussed, the structural issues with Manka, you know, for those reasons, she didn't really crack my top five, which is really more of an, a, not really an indictment of her, but more so of the film itself. But yeah, I, I think, you know, as you said, it, it feels like you've actually, when she's on screen, that you've just been transported back to the 1940s. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the film in general, I think it does a really good job at captivating that or capturing that. But yeah, her role particularly is one where it's like, wow, she just, just not even... I mean, there's just a certain way that actors and actresses in 1940s films spoke. And it, and I can't imagine it's the way that they spoke in regular life because it would be absolutely bizarre. <laughs> but the way that she's able to mirror that and not just feel like a, a impersonation of it, but the way that she's able to truly feel like you're watching a film from the 1940s is, is a testament. For sure. And she's uh, ranked number six in our system. Um, yeah. So I, I think that, like I mentioned earlier, the push from Netflix seems to have been – because there's these awards campaigns. Um, now now campaigning is as big of a thing as anything. And it seems like Netflix is really putting their momentum behind uh, Amanda Seyfried. And, and in a cast with tons of who, people who could be theoretical <laughs> leads in their own movie, I think that uh, that that it says something that Netflix has kind of chosen her as their 
golden child for this one. Yeah, fingers crossed. I think it would be a well-deserved win if she gets it, but certainly a nomination. So there's a couple points right there. For um, sure. What's your number four, Pat? So my number four is, I'll start with this. His rank in our system is 518. <laughs> so, but I don't think, so I don't think he's going to win any awards, but it's a performance that I just absolutely will love. And it's John David Washington. Awesome. In Tenet? So yes, it's not for Malcolm and Marie, which okay. looks fantastic with Wizendaya, but you know, per our rules, that's that's next year, and I don't think anybody has seen that to date. But yes, it is for Tenant, and I think that the reasoning behind it is just, I think he just is just a phenomenal action star, and mm. I think we're going to see him in more things like uh, sci-fi action movies or action movies. Like I could see him getting his own franchise, like a Bourne franchise or something like that. I think that he's just so phenomenal in these action scenes and the fact that he has the athletic ability to do the things that he's asked to do. You know, I'm never going to look at a cheese grater the same way again <laughs> based on what he was able to do in that one kitchen scene. You know, he's a former college football player and he played, you know, he was selected to play for, uh, uh, I guess, selected out of free agency to play in the NFL for a period of time. So this is a guy who can really do stuff physically that a lot of movie stars can't do. Or they can, but they just like Tom, Tom Cruise have to train for like 12 months to kind of figure out how to do every little piece of the role that they're doing. So I, I think that in addition to kind of the physicality of it, you know, he, he really is also just somebody actually bringing humor to a director who does not typically have yep. humor. You know, Christopher Nolan's not famously known for his funny movies, um, but it's <laughs> great that he actually allows John David Washington to bring some of that, you know. As a guy who started off, maybe his largest role was with ballers, uh, to be at this place where, place where he is now is, I think, quite the leap. And it makes this what can be sometimes confusing movie really fun. I, I think Tenet, above all things, is like a fun movie to watch. And while it may not win any awards this year, I think that there's something to be said for fun movies, especially during this time. I completely agree. He has an easiness to when he's on screen that is kind of quintessential to being a movie star, right? Like you need to enjoy watching the person and it needs to not feel like work. And right. I feel like John David Washington has that. And especially for a movie like Tenet, which in all other aspects is like, this is kind of work. Um, well, I guess not not all of them, but in terms of fully understanding the film, it's work. Um, mm -hmm. I think it works really well to have such a charismatic and likable performance at the center. And And I agree, he's got the physicality He's got the charm. I mean, I remember watching him in Ballers and liking him before I knew he was Denzel Washington's son, but it makes right. so much sense that he is because you can just see that same stuff that Denzel Washington had at the beginning of his career where it's just fun to watch him be in a film. Yeah, and he's amassing quite the career. Now, Now you know, yeah. he had Black Klansman, which you need to go from, from where he started with Ballers to uh, this... Uh, Academy Award nominated film of Black Klansman to now Tenet. He's kind of showing that he's he's versatile. It's not just one lane that he needs to be in. He can kind of do it all, which is awesome. And, you know, I think there's a Robert Pattinson who's also in that film. Him and Robert Pattinson bounce just really nicely off yep. of each other. And they they do that right from the beginning. And part of that is because of the plot construction. It seems like they just have been friends forever. Um, but it is just this really awesome relationship. And Robert Pattinson's also one of my favorite actors of favorite working people. So great to see those two people who I just really admire in one film together, just having a great time. Yeah. So that is John David Washington from Tenet. 
is Pat's number four, and uh, you can catch that on VOD, I think. Definitely worth it. It's it's a fun trip. Um, my number four is another one that's kind of lower on the star draft. It still is within the top 200, but just barely. It's uh, 195th, and it's Dev Patel. I apologize for my rudeness. Oh, he's apologizing, Jeff. Shall we forgive him? He says we shall. Thank you, Chip. Think nothing of it, sir. Speaks very well. It was actually me. (laughs) I like to pretend he speaks. Some people think it idiotic. Oh, no. I I, I do it myself all the time. Uh, Don't I, Mr... Apple tree. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, I'm David Copperfield. Are you still being the tree? No. So Dev Patel plays the titular role of David Copperfield in Armando Iannucci's film, The Personal History of David Copperfield. And that is, I believe, very loosely, or maybe not so loosely, I don't know how loosely, but it is loosely based on the novel David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. And I think this film is an absolute delight. It's it's somewhat of a fantasy epic without any fantasy. It follows the life of Dev Patel's David Copperfield as he goes from childhood to young adulthood, and he kind of is moving from home to home in different parts of England, and he's meeting this ridiculous cast of characters, and specifically the people who are in charge of taking care of him along the way. Um, It reminds me a bit of a series of unfortunate events, except it's kind of all jam-packed into one film, and there's not even a real antagonist like there is in those novels or TV show or however you consumed that story. And Even in spite of a lack of antagonist or anything that's really technically a plot, I feel like this film is completely propulsive. It's always moving along to the next thing. And and characters, they do return at different points in the film. But the story's central point of view is always Dev Patel. I mean, other than the very beginning when David is played by a, a child actor, we are always with Dev Patel. And he's going to all these new places. And in order to care about the story... And in order to really follow the story in any meaningful way, we really need to care about that character. And we also really need to enjoy being with him. And I think similarly to what we were talking about with John David Washington is that Dev Patel is just a really pleasant actor to spend time with. He has this relaxing presence. He he gives off a gentle and caring aura. And that type of presence, that like generosity, is very quintessential to his character in this film, who's compassionate almost to a fault. But there's also a ton of scenes that require him to turn up the emotions and express things like anger, confusion, sadness. And I really like that it's always believable. It never feels over the top, which I think is important for a story that is filled with so many over the top ridiculous characters. So he's grounded without being dull. And I think it's just another example in a long, long line of examples of how great of an actor Dev Patel is. I think he's really underrated. No, for sure. And so admittedly, this is is a film I have not seen, but I think this is when we were speaking about one of the challenges of what year was this released? It yeah. actually premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 2019 in, in September. <laughs> but yes, it, it like is now finally making its like larger releases this year. It's just further adding to the conundrum of like what what when are movies released nowadays? But I think one of the other things to add too, um, as we're kind of thinking about award seasons, is Yes, the Oscars tends to be the crown jewel, but 
the Golden Globes also has comedy and musical. Right. So while Dev Patel likely is not going to be winning, likely not going to be winning at, you know, the Oscars, he is up there as a candidate for the Golden Globes where they do have a specific category for comedy musical. You know, we've seen examples of this in the past where like Matt Damon just basically comes in and crushes comedy and musical for (laughs) The Martian um, and receives a nomination for the Oscars. Not a comedy or a musical, but that's Not a comedy or a musical, (laughs) but yeah. Or like uh, Golden Globes, I remember famously nominated Red with Bruce Willis, which is, I could not imagine a further from comedy. Um, (laughs) But yes, the the categories that the Golden Globes, they just have a little bit more flexibility, but you know, not to kind of drift back to Star Trek too much, but there is that opportunity if you are selecting folks, think about the other award shows that are involved as well, because not everything is just centered around the uh, Oscars in terms of their ability to win points. And if I remember specifically that the Golden Globes likes Dev Patel a lot, like he was nominated for Lion, I believe, mm-hmm. and also Slumdog Millionaire. I don't think he ever ever won for anything, but he sprinkles up here and there and he really likes these types of movies where he gets to play a character kind of from teenagehood to um, young slash middle-aged adolescence. And I think it's starting to strain credulity a little bit like he cannot <laughs> he can no longer pull off 17 18 he's he's a big dude now but um still a fantastic performer and just has such warmth to him yeah well and, and the 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 golden globes i think it, there are some similarities to the baftas in terms of what they like you know there are some preferences typically given to international or british actors it seems like at the globes and We've seen that with, you know, the favorite I mentioned that film earlier, that that was a film that did particularly well at the Golden yeah. Globes, but not necessarily at the Oscars. So, yeah, I, I, you know, between all of the stuff that he you've already referenced, I think that he's a pretty good pick for this, uh, this draft right here. Yeah. So that's Dev Patel for The Personal History of David Copperfield. That film is available on VOD. I think it's pretty cheap. You can rent it for like six bucks. Um, so, Pat, I would definitely what have I been recommend doing? it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's go ahead and take a quick break here. And when we return, we'll wrap up our top five performances from 2020. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Okay, we are back and moving on to our third best performances from 2020. No overlaps yet, Pat. I know. Uh, who do you got for number three? So number three, I have Maria Bakalova. So <laughs> this is for the Borat subsequent movie film. And I must admit, when I was starting this award show season, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that Borat subsequent movie film would be would have any nominees in my in my top <laughs> list. But as she just basically takes over and commands this movie. And you know, part of that is due to the fact that 
Sasha Baron Cohen has some certain limitations. The movie opens with him in his Borat costume, essentially being chased around the various locations that he is. So he's just yeah, become great. too famous <laughs> as Borat to, to actually exist. But I think that she has just so much of a presence in this film and willingness to just kind of play this bit to the fullest. And she lives and embodies this absurd character throughout from this virtual unknown. Like, I don't think I, I've known her to be in, in much. And I, I think this was kind of her most known performance to date, for sure. And to kind of walk on to this, in, into these like improvised scenes with one of the greatest comedy improvisers who's been doing this for years and to co- yeah. not only just keep up, but sometimes steal the show um, really says something. And I think that if you're able to create um, political drama within the American landscape as well with the, the Rudy Giuliani scene as well, that says oh. something. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, this is a, a film that has touched many aspects. You know, comedies don't typically do particularly well at the Oscars, but I could see this, even her performance here, she's just doing so much that it'd be hard to kind of completely overlook what she's doing. Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely a narrative around it too, both politically and a lot of these award ceremonies love to nominate up-and-comers, and she's certainly an up-and-comer. She was a complete unknown until this film. So I think a lot of people love being, especially certain award ceremonies, they love being the ones that say, hey, we we tapped her first kind of right. thing. So I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of that narrative. Um, looking at the Star Draft ranking, she's 81 with 6.15 points available um, or you know projected. And I think from you know, the Golden Globes alone, you get the nomination and it's very possible the win, um, especially if she goes best actress, because I think the supporting categories are across both drama and uh, mm-hmm. comedy. But if they run her as best actress in a comedy, I think that's kind of hers for the the win. Yeah, certainly. I think I think that there's there's some interesting things just going on with that, that whole selection and that, that whole process. But I, I would not be surprised to see her uh, take home a trophy this year. Great performance from a, a great film. Definitely worth checking out. Um, that is Borat 2. We'll cut the title <laughs> there. <laughs> and you can check that out on uh, Prime Video. Uh, my number three is also a blonde-haired actress, um, but in a completely different movie. This is Elizabeth Moss from The Invisible Man. You never did want to get him admitting anything on tape, did you? Of course I did. I just didn't know he was that unstable. You heard it, right? James? What'd it sound like to you? So... She plays Cecilia. She's the main character, not the titular character, but the main character and the victim of The Invisible Man. I haven't seen this film since I saw it for the first time in theaters, which is technically with linear time about, what, maybe 10 months ago, but by emotional time, <laughs> it's 15 years, something like that. So it's it's kind of a distant memory compared to some of these other films. But the the general takeaway from the film is that it's really, really brutal to Elizabeth Moss. She is psychologically tortured. She's isolated from basically everybody else in the film. 
Um, she's physically and verbally assaulted. It's in a lot of ways, it's a really tough film to watch, but I do think that the film is very good because it's, it's very tense. It is scary in a thriller way, as opposed to a gory slasher horror flick kind of way. And I think it's really well crafted. There's a lot of holy shit moments. And even though there's a bit of suspension of disbelief behind how the invisible man is invisible, I think the film takes itself very seriously. And something that I really love when horror movies do is it adheres to its own eternal logic. And one of the things that I can find very frustrating about these types of films is when characters are written to intentionally act stupid so that it advances the plot. Um, it's a lazy way to put the characters in danger. And when you're watching it, you're just like, well, that could have been avoided if the character did this or X, Y, Z. And it usually takes you out of the film. And I, I really think that this film has very few instances of that. Um, Cecilia is intelligent. She does everything she can in a given situation. She tries to problem solve everything. She does everything right. And the film still figures out a way to isolate her and torture her. And it really makes her situation feel truly desperate and horrifying. And I think if Elizabeth Moss is good at anything, it's acting in distressing situations. It seems like everything she's in, whether it's TV or movies, is she is uh, just going through one. Just once, it would be nice if she was like in a rom-com or something, but I, I guess she really likes doing this because she's really good at it, and it's a real challenge to act this way. She's just so good at acting terrified, emotionally vulnerable, and also like a, a bit unhinged at moments without feeling incompetent or obnoxious because she's channeling something that the audience isn't connecting with. I I think that the way that she controls her face and her body when she's scared or confused really adds to the atmosphere of the film, and it makes it one of my favorite films of the year. So um, she is not ranked in the star draft, at least in the top 200. You might be able to pull what her actual ranking <laughs> is, but it's it's one of my favorite uh, performances of the year for sure. Yeah, she's, she's deep in the system, but she's in there. Um, I, I think for sure uh, she is... Uh, as you said, very good at playing a woman who you believe has lost her mind. Yeah. Um, and I think I think in a situation where if you're watching the film and you don't have kind of the context of the Invisible Man, everybody who is kind of reacting to her is a re also reacting proportionate. Like yeah. There is not the kind of like – I don't know. Sometimes in horror movies, you feel like, no, you should probably listen to this person. I don't think that anybody should listen to Elizabeth Moss in this film. Um, <laughs> and that, that is completely okay uh, because it kind of, as you mentioned, fits the internal logic of the film. But no, I think she does a, a phenomenal job. It's a movie that's like profoundly surprising, which I think is yeah. hard to do in a movie with that much IP as well. It's not like this is a completely original idea. The original, the Invisible Man has been around for decades now. So I think the fact that I went into this movie and was surprised was a great uh, surprise for me, I suppose. Um, but also, I think that she really delivers in what the performance is. And if you ever need a crazy person, go to Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> There's a um, moment that is not really a spoiler, but just in case somebody doesn't want to know anything about it, I'm going to talk about it briefly. But there's a moment where she's kind of with her foster family or surrogate family, and she's just been through a pretty difficult situation. And she's talking with the young girl who I believe is played by, am I making it up? Is it Amanda Stahlberg? Oh, Maybe not. I, I don't know. I don't have um, it in front of me. Yeah. Anyway, so she's 
getting comforted by her and and they're all alone and she's like yeah you know we'll just have a, a chill night together and then the the girl kind of turns her head and the invisible man is in the room and just smacks the girl and mm-hmm. the girl freaks out and elizabeth moss is obviously like that wasn't me but everybody accuses her of smacking the girl completely out of the blue and from the perspective of elizabeth moss it's like she didn't do it it's, it's obviously not her but how do you prove that to everybody else, of course, Elizabeth Moss hit her. There's no other logical explanation. And just that thing alone, that that idea alone is so psychologically messed up. And there are so many moments like that. And, and I love that the film crafts these things that are just, you sit there and you're like, there's no way that I could explain this. I, I completely understand what the character is going through right now. Yeah, I really look forward to Elizabeth Moss just playing a happy-go-lucky person, which I know she has done at some point, but uh, she's so good at, in, in this role and <laughs> in, in this movie. So um, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't wish for 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 more different roles because she's so good in this lane. Yeah, and, and hopefully someday they'll recognize her. But of course, we've got horror biases and everything. But you can check out The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. That's my number three. And I believe it's on HBO Max. Really worth a watch. I'm definitely going to rewatch it sometime soon. So still no overlaps, Pat, but we are now at your number two. I have a feeling that we'll have at least one overlap coming up here. Yes, uh, my my number two is Viola Davis. Okay, Ma, we're ready to go. Where's my Coke? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, boys. Where's my Coke? I need a Coke. Hard as it is, sure. I need a Coke. What's the matter, Ma? Where's my Coke? I need a Coke, Coca-Cola. Uh, Ma, look. I forgot the Coke. Let's do it without it, huh? Just this one song. What say, boys? Damn what the band say. You're supposed to have my Coca-Cola. You knew that. I knew nothing without my Coca-Cola. Uh, Ooh. So I'm, you know, fingers crossed, we may have a <laughs> somebody we both have at some point, but maybe not on this one. She, uh, while not actually singing, uh, commands a certain level of presence in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that I did not think was achievable. I read... August Wilson's play several years back. And when I heard that they were making it into a movie, I was like, well, this is a larger than life personality that I don't think could actually work mm-hmm. on screen, but shows what I know and shows the never second guess Viola Davis and what she can do. Because <laughs> um, she is just chewing the scenery in this movie and just really bringing so much presence and physicality to the role. Yeah. It is not a role with a ton of lines. It is, you know, she is, yes, while kind of commanding the room in most situations, she's doing that more physically than anything. Um, and it is one of those type of roles where she did transform her body for it, which is just um, really phenomenal to watch and her really embody this legend of Ma Rainey. And in this film that has received so much discussion this year um, for a variety of reasons. And I think I think the reality is August Wilson plays are some of the greatest written texts known to man. And I think some work better than others. I, you know, if it was up to me if I had to choose Fences versus Ma Rainey's Fences is, is a, a better movie. Mm-hmm. But I think Viola Davis' performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is, is much stronger. And is just a phenomenal role. So I think that that that's the reason she's my number two. I don't know what there is to say. It's it's Viola Davis and just being able to kind of quote unquote act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she 
the the physicality of it is the thing that really just is magnetic for me in this performance. Like she is a five five woman, but in this film she feels like she's six two, and she just absolutely. absolutely towers and occupies every space that she's in um and i mean some of it i'm sure is her putting on the weight but also just like prosthetics and things like that i'm sure she has a lot of that going on but just the way that she carries herself the way that she talks the way that we know everything about her just from how she treats other people um both positively and negatively like it's just a really fantastic performance without even necessarily being the central performance of the film yeah, you know everything you need to know about her from the first ten seconds where she's in the car accident. <laughs> and then, yeah, <laughs> and it's just it's all right there. Um, no, it's it's truly phenomenal. Yeah, such a great performance. Uh, water is wet. Viola Davis is Pat's <laughs> number two. Um, I'm also going to kind of coast into my number two because it's related, and I feel bad because it's. I'm pretty sure I'm taking your number one, but my number two is Chadwick Boseman from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mm-hmm. Is that your number one? It's actually not. I, you know, okay. I was kind of going off of, you know, it is one of my favorite performances. I, you know, was saving some of the some of the spots, I think, at this point. And, uh, I was hoping you might pick him. Ah, okay. You played the game. Very <laughs> well done. gaming well done. of the system here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, Chadwick Boseman, he's Levy in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, for me, this was inevitably going to be on the list. I think his performance has been praised and talked about since the film came out. And I don't really think that it's just because he passed away. I, I think the performance is fantastic. And most specifically, it's a huge departure from a lot of his other performances. He's obviously most well known for T'Challa or Black Panther in the MCU. And I think he in that role, it's it's very good. Um, the character is very regal and noble. Um, and Bozeman kind of has this calming presence as T'Challa where he he has such power and magnetism that you are, you trust what's going on when he's around. He just kind of demands respect from his nobility. He's literally the king. And I think a lot of his other characters are similar. You've got, you know, Jackie Robinson, Thurgood Marshall, even the supporting role in Defy Bloods. He's, as you're saying, kind of this um, almost Jesus-like figure or Messiah-like figure. And he often plays a powerful character that's an anchor in a storm and kind of the story and the the more volatile characters move around him. But in this film, that's not true at all. Levy is an instigator. He's the driving force of the conflict. And he's kind of like rascally, sh- smarmy. Um, he's got this cocky attitude and he's very clearly insecure, which I don't think Chadwick Boseman has ever felt in a movie before. And he's also a lot physically smaller in the role. And so he plays Levy as complicated as a flawed character. And I think it completely works. It's a testament to his ability to be both a man who leads Wakanda, but also a man who's kind of a bit of a shit as Levy is (laughs) in this film. And I mean, you love Levy, but you also are kind of angry with them. You understand what he's doing and you sympathize with him, but he's also not the character that you go to, to, stand tall in the face of racism, for example, as he, as uh, Chadwick Boseman plays Jackie Robinson as this kind of just, I have to stand firm and tall against it. This is, Levy's much more emotional and he's more volatile. And I think the fact that he can do both is a real testament to him as an actor. Yeah. He's typically this regal character 
and yeah. oftentimes relied on to advance the plot. Like I think really he is great in in uh, Black Panther and the Avengers movies, but he's really more of a plot device at points than anything to kind of make things that make sure things move along. Right. Like you're saying here, he's no longer regal. He is very much, or as you say, a little shit or childish. Yeah. Um, and it, um, amongst also these amazing other actors that he's with, many of them with kind of longstanding uh, histories in, in both play and film, he not only holds his own, but is just a force throughout it. And it's a, it's, it's a very... They give him the space – well, the play, I guess, gives him the space to kind of really live out this role and really take over for advancing kind of his own mission, I guess, in this in this movie as opposed to kind of having to kind of advance the larger plot of the film. And there is something about him playing a young and incredibly talented, almost burning too bright star in this film – and then obviously we don't get his legacy after, you know, this, it's, it's, it's bittersweet in a way. I mean, you know, I've said this before, but it's this performance that really made me grapple with how many amazing performances we were going to get. If it wasn't for mm -hmm. that untimely death, like I think he's great as T'Challa um, and he's definitely irreplaceable in that role, but just given where that role is in the MCU and what type of films those are it's it's a fairly limited role and there's also an expiration date on it he he wasn't going to play T'Challa forever just due to physicality reasons um but i think roles like Levy in this film and also what he did in Five Bloods like we were going to get so many more of those types of performances they're unique they're powerful like we could have gotten that for ostensibly four or five more decades so uh, this film is is really bittersweet to me because it's like Wow, I'm, I'm we're really lucky that we got this performance at all, but it's also so frustrating that this is the last one. Yeah, no, it's 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 quite sad, and I think what we yeah. we talked about early on the physicality of of John David Washington. This is another actor who's played Jackie Robinson. He's in Draft Day playing a football player, and then he's obviously all throughout the MCU. These are incredibly physical roles, and you're right, we probably wouldn't have seen that going on forever. Um, but, you know, even as recently as a couple of years ago, he's in an action movie as a 21 Bridges. So, like, he mm -hmm. was an action star that we've lost. Tom Cruise has proved that you can be an action star into your 60s. <laughs> That's true. So yeah. I, feel like, I feel like we've really missed an opportunity, not just for these types of performances, but um, in some of these more physically demanding roles as well. I, you know, he, uh, he certainly will be missed. Yeah. Well said. Um, so Chadwick Boseman on the Star Draft is third with 25.1 points. So definitely should go in the first round if um, if you're looking for an actor in that first round. Um, definitely check him out in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That's on Netflix. All right. We're down to our top performance yep. of 2020. Pat, what is your number one performance? Riz Ahmed.
Um, and I mentioned this earlier, Sound of Metal was one of my favorite movies. And um, one of my favorite miniseries of all time is The Night Of and also mm-hmm. starring Riz Ahmed. So maybe there is a bit of bias going on. But I was just completely immersed in this movie. He plays this metal drummer who loses his hearing. And you feel like he's really been able to convey the frustration of a guy who seemed to have finally figured it out um, after going through immense hardship in his life. And then now he has to do it all over again as he loses his hearing. And I think that he perfectly conveys kind of the chaos and the mania of a former addict and being able to kind of live vicariously through his experience of going deaf is just so fascinating. And I think the sound work in this film actually makes it much more engaging. The majority of the film is is silent in terms of the score. Um, and then there also is just a lot of high frequency moments or these like dull moments where he's starting to lose his hearing. And it's just you feel fully immersed in his personal experience of going deaf so much so that I, I felt like I was learning things and like Googling mm-hmm. things and trying to understand the deaf experience even more so after watching this film. I feel like if a movie can actually get me to go to Wikipedia and to start doing some research, it's done its job. It was, <laughs> it's done a good job of kind of getting me fully invested in what's going on in the film. And Riz is just a phenomenal actor and has done some just amazing stuff in the past, including in Star Wars. Um, yep. So to see him really on the stage was just thrilling for me. And, you know, his relationship with Peter Racy is also just phenomenal. And that is not another actor who I, I know very little oh, about. Paul Racy, right? Is it Paul Racy? I'm sorry. I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but but his uh, basically his mentor in the uh, in the rehab facility that he's at, their the, their interplay and their relationship is just so interesting and so lifelike as uh, for for a mentor mentee relationship, and you could really see the push and pull in those moments. Pat, we did it. My number one is also Riz Ahmed. You kidding me? Oh my goodness, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so we we had completely different five through two, but number one, I I completely agree with everything you said, and I really don't have much to add because you you hit everything on the head that I was going to say. I mean, I've loved this guy since. I mean, if we're going to throw out other Riz Ahmed performances to check out, Nightcrawler, fantastic oh, in yeah. that film. Um, I think like a lot of the other characters or actors on my list is he is just very naturally a sympathetic person. He has that kind of it factor that you just care about what happens to him. And more so than some of the other characters actually, or actors actually, is he's kind of almost got a a puppy dog aesthetic to him where you just really want the absolute best for this character. And I think it's true in Sound of Metal. You want the best for Ruben because he's so likable, even when he's acting like an asshole. And that's that specific Riz Ahmed charisma. But as you're saying, he also gets a lot of this um, subtle complexity, I guess, from being a former addict. And the film is not about him and addiction. I mean, there's some parallels made to how he deals with his hearing loss and how somebody might deal with addiction. But the film isn't about his addiction to whatever he was addicted to. And and I think the way that Riz Ahmed portrays that without it actually being the focus of the film is really fantastic. Um, And then just the one other thing that I want to say that I haven't said on this podcast before, I I think, is that I really like how 
realistically he plays being deaf and how realistically he portrays the conflicting emotions that he has when that's given to him. Um, I think there's lots of films like this that are they uh, could borderline on disability porn, a type of Oscar bait. But in this one, it's just such a respectful performance and such a real performance about what this would actually mean to go through. And like you're saying, I think it's such an immersive film in the way that it makes you almost feel like you're going through it with them. It's a fantastic film, one of the year's best. And I completely agree with you. Riz Ahmed is my number one. I love it. We finally did it. <laughs> and um star draft is it's not <laughs> ahmed is not number one he's 84th um <laughs> with 6.025 uh, points but of course you know i think compared to olivia coleman who has so many opportunities to win ahmed's limited to just this one and it's also probably not going to be winning things like um ensemble awards or anything but you can see what I'm, I'm doing my best to kind of be non un, unbiased. Our rankings yeah. are who we think are going to win, not necessarily who who Pat's favorites are. So we're doing our <laughs> best over here. Yeah, no, and and I mean, you know, the the Academy Awards never pick the people who we want to win. It's almost <laughs> never that. But I mean, I would love. I think just being nominated is probably a win for him. Um, and I think the film does stand some chances to get like some sound design. Um, Oscars and things like that, that would be really cool. Yeah, no, for sure. But I think when you're competing against your number two in Chadwick Boseman, it's a a tough uphill climb. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, fortunately, Riz Ahmed is going to have a a long career. I mean, knock on wood, but a a long career of really fascinating performances. Um, I think he's got another one coming out pretty soon here that also looks fantastic. So, I mean, he's, he's an actor that if he's in something it instantly pikes my curiosity about whatever that is. I mean, I know he was in Venom. He wasn't great in Venom, but everything else I think he's been kind of the standout in. Oh, right. He's going to be in the Hamlet and Exit Hamlet uh, adaptation with, I think, is uh, Francis McDormand and uh, Denzel Washington. Oh, so he, yeah, he's definitely going to be carrying that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'll be the lead in that film. <laughs> yeah, just weak-ass performances all around except for Riz Ahmed in that one. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, that pretty much wraps it up for us here. Um, this has been our countdown of the top five performances of 2020. Pat, for clarity, can you state your top five again? Uh, my top five are Riz Ahmed, Viola Davis, Maria Bakalova, John David Washington, and Delroy Lindo. And I was counting those one, two, five. Yes. And so one to five for me is number one is also Riz Ahmed and then Chadwick Boseman. Elizabeth Moss, Dev Patel, and Amanda Seyfried. So I really liked that. We we were we came to a consensus on that first one. So that's a <laughs> testament to Riz Ahmed. Uh, definitely check that out on Amazon Prime if you haven't. But we also have what eight other is that math? Yes, eight other performances <laughs> that you can check out. Um, twenty twenty was was a pretty solid year, all things considered, in terms of film. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how everything pans out during the the award season. Certainly. And I think that the fact that we only had one is a, is a good sign. It'd be concerning yeah. if we had a consensus opinion <laughs> of these are the five best performances. Absolutely. So, Pat, yeah, this was awesome. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for talking about the Star Draft and kind of giving us a peek behind the curtain. Um, is there anything specific that you want to plug here? 
Um, yes, you can check out the website. It's thestardraft.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at stardraft underscore. You can follow me at PQ Burke on Twitter, but that's largely going to be tweets about higher education as that's my day job. So <laughs> probably stick to the, the star draft. That's where it's going to be the most interesting uh, film related things. But thank you so much for having me on the show today. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again. And this was a blast. Uh, and remember, listener, if you're interested in joining the Movie Marathoners Draft League, make an account on the stardraft.com and search for our league in the public league page or reach out to me and I'll get you set up. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by Dana Nyland to curate the Movie Marathoners Top 10 Films of 2020. So be sure to stay tuned for that because it's going to be a good one. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.